the passage today is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying for it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we continue in our series in Ecclesiastes, the preacher today warns us of what we just watched, a life that says we believe in God, a life that says that we regard him as holy and precious, but a life that is not a demonstration of that reality. How many of you could identify with some little semblance of that video just by show of hands? Yeah, yeah. If you're not identifying with any of that, you're lying. So, um, and the word has something to say about that as well. Um, but it, it's so easy for us on a weekly basis to get into the rote rituals of religion. And what the author says, the preacher says, he says it's vanity. Religion is vanity because religion is our way of trying to earn God's affection, love, and approval. And you could try as hard as you want. To earn God's love, affection, and approval. And you know what you're going to be doing? The same thing over and over and over again. Expecting different results, which is the definition of insanity. You cannot, you cannot earn the approval of God. And so this morning what we're going to talk about, and we're going to use the book of Ecclesiastes as our basis, as the word of truth to do that, is the vanity of religion, but the power of true worship. The vanity of religion versus the power of true worship. So one of the common mistakes that we can make about the the word of God, the scripture, is that the Bible is talking to everybody out there. The Bible is talking to everybody out in the world. It's talking to all the lost people, all the people that are somewhere else that aren't here that should be here this morning. But but really, one of the things that we miss if we read the Bible in that way is that the Bible actually speaks to those that are within the congregation of God, the people of God. The Bible speaks to us. And so this word of God has meaning and significance and it's to you. Author Danny Aiken says, it's possible for people to show up for worship week after week, year after year, decade after decade, 
but their lives are not really changed. They are still cruel to others, harsh to their spouses, perverted in their jokes, and indifferent towards their children as they've always been. That's a great danger, a significant danger that each of us face this morning, that we would come under the authority of the holy word of God and it won't change us. And this morning what we need most is that God's truth would bear fruit in our lives to change us from the inside out. It was a great conviction that I lived under this week as I prepared this sermon and, and saying, it's so, it, it's so easy for me to get into the ritual of the holy and divine things that I'm doing right now when, when there's nothing ordinary about this. It may seem ordinary, but we are caught up friends in the extraordinary when we approach the holiness of God in authentic worship. And so the author, the preacher, has spent four chapters telling us the vanity that he's experienced in life under the sun, divorced from or disconnected from God. He says, I've sought pleasure in my toil. And he says, what have I profited from it? What have I gained from all my pleasure in my labor, in my toil? I've built things. I've done stuff. He's a, he's a man that's filled with wine. He's had all the alcohol that he could ever, ever have. He's had wisdom. He has women and he has wealth. And so the preacher is looking back at his life in his, in his old age and he's saying, what does it amount to? I have all the wealth and resources. He's the great King Solomon. He's known as the richest man of Israel. And he's had everything he could have ever wanted. And at the end of his life, he's looking back and he's got one word for it all. Vanity. Vanity. Everything is vanity. But here something is different. Here he's talking about something substantial. And we read in um, uh, Ecclesiastes some things about God that he points us to this substance. He points us beyond the shadows that look like a figment of our imagination. He points us to the substance of who God is. In verse 3, he says, whatever God does endures forever. He says it, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. He says that God has given us work to do, be busy with and to enjoy. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This I also have saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Then he says that there's this reward that we receive from our work. And this reward in Ecclesiastes 2, 26 says, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And then he says that in God's sovereignty, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Chapter 3, verse 11. And then finally, which we regard today, Ecclesiastes three seventeen, he says that God will judge the deeds of all 
humanity. In my heart, I said, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. That if you try to live under the sun without regarding the accountability of a holy and righteous God, one day you're going to see that it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless and you are going to be punished for it. And so there's this plea that we have here. This plea that says, let's forsake the vanity of religion and let's take hold on true worship. I want to unpack this passage in four parts this morning. Number one is really simple. The the points are taken straight from the text. Verse one, guard your steps. Guard your steps. Verses two and three, watch your mouth. Say that to my kids all the time. Watch your mouth, kids. Don't talk to your dad like that or your mom. Number three, honor your vow. Verses four and six. And the first point is stand in awe. In verse 7, let's start with guard your steps. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. How do you approach a holy God. How do you approach a God who is majestic, who's all-powerful, who's mighty, who's in all authority? How do you approach this holy and righteous God? The preacher has a word of wisdom for us here. Guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go before this holy God. And we see in the scriptures, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That the church is not contained by the four walls of a building, but the church is the people of God. But if you were a a Jew reading this in the time of King Solomon, or you would have heard this, you would have thought about the temple. And this temple was this building that was built, that took seven years for it to be built. And it was a building that showed of God's majesty, God's glory, and God's beauty. And the word for the people was guard your steps. We're not to play fast and loose with him. That you would not treat him in a way that's flippant or without regard for his holiness. In Isaiah 6, Verses 1 through 5, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. It's just two books over from the one you're in, just a few pages. In Isaiah chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So the picture and imagery we're getting here is that this God is high and exalted and the temple was massive and just the train of his robe filled the temple. And it says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face with two. He covered his feet and with two. 
he flew. Seraphim, by the way, aren't little cute little Cupid's angels. They're like F-16 fighter jets encircling the throne. And as they encircle the throne, they're singing this song and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And right now, this scene of heaven is taking place. And all the saints are joining in on this wonderful song of the holiness of God, who's the train of his robe fills the temple. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they sing it over and over and over again. Guard your steps because this God is holy. That you would know that when you tread into the Lord's presence, you are walking on holy ground. That's why when Moses saw the burning bush, he had to take off his flip-flops. They're probably sandals, but maybe tevas, I don't know. He had to take them off. Because he was not to bring in what was from the outside into the place of purity and holiness and glory and beauty. And there's something that's to be said about our hearts this morning as we come to the place of God. Because holiness isn't about cleaning ourselves up. How could unrighteous be made righteous? How can, how can the unholy be made holy? How could even the most perfect among us, when compared to the holy great God, how could they approach his majesty, his glory, in his beauty. And so the, war, the warning we receive here is a warning of against ritual without repentance. It's a warning against ritual without repentance. Every Sunday we're here, 10 a.m. Maybe some of you, 10.15. You need to be here a little bit earlier. Sunday, 10 a.m. We even give you a five-minute delay. But Sunday is a place of ritual, isn't it? We take communion every week. We take the bread, we dip it in the cup, we receive the Lord's Supper, we sing some songs, we devote our hearts to God's Word. And you know there's a real danger in what we do every week if we don't regard God in it, is that's Godless. It does not take in consideration the one who gathered us. And so it becomes a thing of ritual. You know who's really good at ritual in the times of Jesus that Jesus despised? It was the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees. They gave a tenth of their spice rack to the Lord because they wanted to be down to the T. And you know what Jesus calls them? Whitewashed tombs. My translation says you're just a bunch of good looking dead people. Everything on the outside says that you're alive, but he sees right through the heart and they were corpses. And so ritual without repentance leads to death. Repentance and ritual leads to life. The guarding against is not in doing the ritual. But the ritual has meaning and significance. That's why we take communion every Sunday. Because Jesus commands it. That we would come before this holy and righteous God. And we would say, God, my heart belongs to you. Do what you will with it. John Piper, pastor in Minnesota, he's now retired from the church in Bethlehem Baptist, 
He's a pastor who regards the holiness of God, in my opinion, in my generation. He is a pastor who gets it the best. He says this, people are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, show me thy glory. Is that not the hidden cry of our souls? Sometimes we think we need six steps to better relationships. And that's the exact thing that John Piper is writing to young preachers and say, don't give in to it. Because people have these felt needs. Fix my finances. Fix my marriage. Fix my kids. Fix my jobs. Fix my idol, in other words. And the hidden cry of the soul says, show me thy glory. Isn't that what you long for this morning? That we would taste heaven here. That we would taste what the rest of the world cannot experience. Give them a self-help book and they could fix those things. But when you come under the holiness of God, he transforms it from the inside out. That we would guard our steps in his presence. And we would say with the hidden cry of our souls, show me thy glory. I'm so thankful that Pastor Josiah led us as he did this morning. Because that was the cry of our hearts this morning. Show me thy glory. Second point, watch your mouth. (laughs) Watch your mouth. If you have kids, you've said these words before and chances are they've said them back to you. (laughs) Haven't they? Mine have. That's right. That's right. And then I say it back to them and then they go get a spanking. So we, we, we deal with it that way. Um, watch your mouth and cover your butt. All right. Um, but here there's a, there's a, 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 a real, a, a real strong warning against the foolishness that we have when we bring many words to God, thinking that somehow our words can, can persuade him. <laughs> How could our words persuade a God who sees right through them to the heart? That, that's exactly what Solomon is saying is vanity here. If you think that the eloquence of your speech persuades a holy and majestic and mighty God who knows your heart to the core, knows it better than you do, then you're a fool right here. That's why he says to listen is better better than to offer sacrifices. And, And Jesus gives us the same warning as it relates to the Pharisees in prayer. He says, when you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees do, out where everybody can see them in the open, offering many words. He says, go into your closet and speak to God directly because God knows your heart. And so something as holy and majestic as prayer, they've made a circus as a way of getting approval in others saying that you're so holy and so great and so close to God. And they would put oil on their faces to show that they've been fasting. And all of these things were done for the approval of man and not the approval of God. And they didn't even know how sinful they were at the time. And with their mouth, instead of blessing God, they cursed him. So watch your mouth. It's not about coarse joking. It's not about these other things. It's about, it's about making sure that your heart is in line with your words. We've offered words to God today. 
We've sung to him these wonderful songs. And my question to you is, have you prepared your heart for that? Have you prepared your heart to match what your lips are saying? And that we would regard that as a holy thing. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's such a, I mean, if there's a statement of remembrance for us here today, he's in heaven and I'm on earth. He's, there's a massive distance between us and him. And that distance says that it's not about me trying to get there. It's about me recognizing where he is and where I am. And because of where he is, it shows me how much I need him. How much I need him. So when we offer God's, when we offer words to God, they should be honest and sincere rather than flippant and insincere, thinking that somehow God is moved by our persuasion. But honesty is the simplicity of the way our words should be before God. God isn't impressed by long prayers. Sometimes it's the simple prayers that most move the heart of God. The places of prayer of sincerity. Sometimes it can be in absolute desperation. And I tell my kids this as they go to bed at night and they struggle sometimes with unbelief. I I, I tell them the, the powerful prayer Jesus told the centurion who struggled to believe that Jesus would heal his daughter in that moment. I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. That it's a good prayer to pray that prayer from the sincerity and honesty of your heart. Know your place. We're called to know our place. The great theologian, Lisa from The Simpsons, she says, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? It's just better to shut up then confirm the obvious. (laughs) And we should do that in regards not only to God, but people. That simplicity safeguards sincerity. Simplicity safeguards sincerity. Don't offer a whole lot of words. Just be simple in the words that you have. Not trying to persuade God or other people, but let your life prove to others and to him the authenticity of your own heart. And then the next point is that we would honor our vows. Honor our vows before God. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? I don't think we realize how many times we vow a vow to God. If you're married here, you've done it. You've gathered before witnesses. You've gathered before someone who officiated your wedding But they're not the main audience that you're vowing before. 
They're witnesses in the presence of God. But ultimately, you are vowing a a vow before God that says, I will promise. I am promising right now till death do us part. I've been married for 13 years. January 21st, 2006 was my wedding date. I share it with Caesar and Sylvia here. Same wedding date. What time were you guys married at? We'll see you at the same time. Do you remember? Close enough. That's right. We were, we, we were about four hours uh, apart. Anyway, uh, and so we, we vowed our vows before God and before others. And we said, Lord, we want your blessing. Now, the hardest vows I keep are those vows. They are so hard to keep. You know Why? Because, man, Carrie's got some problems. Gee whiz, have you guys realized that? You're, she's not here, so I'll, I'd be in trouble if she was. <laughs> no, it's not because of her wickedness and brokenness. It's because of mine. And when you bring them both together, you've got problems, don't you? And do you know how you keep your vow to your spouse? You get on your knees and you ask God for help. Because the God who provided this spouse for you is the God who's going to provide her or him for you for the rest of your life. So long as you trust not them, but him. Him. And so we vow those vows. It's a promise that God gives us to say, I will give you everything you need to sustain your darkest hour. And you know those darkest hours are there. And it's not just marriage, it's life. And you vow these vows before God. And if you vow those vows flippantly without intention to pay them back, to honor those vows, it's not God who's lacking, it's you. God doesn't need you to give him anything, by the way. He's got everything. He doesn't need anything from you. He already has a cattle on a thousand hills. You can give back to God today as much as you want, and it's going to be like a penny out of a billion dollars. It does not matter to him. What matters is not your stuff or your vows. What matters is your heart. And so we have to go before God with a heart check before we offer any vows And that intention of our hearts is not that we're going to offer him empty words, but we're going to offer him sincerity. Any of you seen the movie Amadeus? Anybody know that movie, Amadeus? Great movie. Um, And uh, I love using movies as scripture illustrations because I love movies, especially old nerdy ones about two composers. Um, And so uh, there's uh, Salieri and there's Mozart. And they're both wonderful composers, aren't they? Uh, If you've heard their music, they're, they're both marvelous. But one is decidedly better than the other. Mozart is brilliant. And Salieri knows it. Mozart's irreligious, and Salieri's religious. Mozart's undignified, and Salieri's dignified. Mozart does everything wrong, and he gets everything right. Salieri does everything right, and gets everything wrong. And he blames God for it. He said this vow, if you watch the movie, he said this vow, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. 
After I die, let people speak of my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility, my every hour of my life. Amen. That somehow God would owe him something on the basis of him giving that vow. There's a figure in the Bible, the New Testament. His name's Judas Iscariot. If you follow the storyline of Judas Iscariot, you know that he was one of Jesus' disciples. And he followed Jesus for three years of ministry. And he watched these miraculous things done. But you know what Judas's problem was as it related to Christ? Is that he didn't want Christ. He wanted something from Christ. And so when, it, when he realized that he wasn't going to get what he wanted from Christ, what did he do? He sold him out. For 30 pieces of silver. He knew that the end was near for Jesus. So he cashed out while he could. He was bargaining with God. And when God didn't come through with what was his side of the bargain. He sold out God for some money. Some spare change. And you know what led Judas Iscariot? To hang himself. To hang himself. That somehow we would think that God would bargain with us or somehow God needs us will drive us insane. It will drive us to suicide. And there's a work that God needs to do from the inside out that reorients our heart to not being in a place of giving to God, but in a place of being recipients, humble recipients, saying that everything I have belongs to you because you gave it to me in the first place. Here's a few vows that I think you might have said before. All right? I, I know I, I read your emails. Okay? Uh, God, if you give me this pay raise, I'll give you 10% back. <laughs> if you give me this pay raise, God, I, I, I just promise I'm going to give you 10% back. I've tried that with the lottery. It hasn't worked, by the way. And um, I've even said 20, 50% for crying out loud. If I did get that check, it would probably be like, oh, do I really have to? Come on. Um, God, if you give me a spouse, I promise I won't kiss before we're married. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that one there. God, if you give me children, then I'll read the Bible to them every day and take them to church every Sunday. If you've said that prayer, I know you well enough to know you have it. Or if you've said that vow, I know you well enough to know you have not made good on it. Okay? Um, Lord, if I eat more than I should on the Christmas holiday, I'll eat broccoli and spinach come the new year and wake up at 530 and work out like a crazy man every day. Um, that was mine. I wrote mine down. <laughs> <laughs> we say these vows to God as if somehow it will gain God's favor. But the reality is under the sun, there's nothing we could do to earn God's favor. So there's a simple call, cry and call for us is to stand in awe. You've seen the artwork here on both sides. And this is Ruth's, Ruth's fabulous, by the way. I mean, just, can we give Ruth a round of applause on this? Fabulous. Um, I know her whole heart and soul went into this. And I asked her, I said, would you depict Ecclesiastes chapter 3 for art for us? And I had no idea what it would look like. And so you, you have over here, it's kind of the 50% that you want in life. You want to be born, but you don't want to die. You want to build up, but you don't want to tear down. You, you want to dance, but you don't want to mourn. You want to embrace, but you don't want to refrain from embracing. You, you want to gather, but you don't want to cast away. 
But then the author of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says everything, God makes everything beautiful in his time. And how does he do that? How does he do that? It's through the substance that shines forth through the smoke. It's through the substance that overcomes the shadow. It's through the substance and the fixed work that is eternal in Christ. He makes everything beautiful in his time. So stand in awe. Stand in awe. And this is the nature that we see displayed in the character of God that says, I will keep my vow. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God gives these promises to us when we don't deserve them. And when we act like idiots, he doesn't say, I'm taking the promise back. He says, I'm fulfilling it, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what I have done for you through Christ. And so the call is to stand in awe. Paul says it so well in Romans after giving the doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? And then he ends that doxology for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. And then his response is with his life. He says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies, look at the the mercies of God, the cross of Christ, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To present ourselves, to, to be able to confess with our mouth, which is real, God, I belong to you. And you might not be able to say that. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Maybe you would say, I don't believe in this. It doesn't make it any less true. Because whether you realize it or not, you were made by a holy and righteous God. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knitted you together and he created you for worship. And we've given that worship to things that are less than. We've given, that thing, we've given that worship to things that don't deserve it. But our worship belongs to God. Because God gave up everything for us. This past week has been surreal. Um, it's been the closures of a lot of different seasons of my life. As you guys have been tracking with me in the death of my father, um, on Friday we closed on the sale of my dad's company. And so C&W Engineering now belongs to someone else. And that has been God's blessing for my family. Uh, this weekend, my, my brother's actually here, Chris, and, and we came together and we cleaned out much of mom's house to get ready to move, to move her up into the Orlando area. And uh, this house that mom and dad have had for over 20 years has been, I, I mean, it was beautiful. We, we drove into this community homeland when we bought the house and it was like, we're living in Fort Wilderness, man. at five acre home sites and ha- had a wonderful pool and we had two horses at a time and, um, and the horses were great until they kicked you off. And so they're, 
you know, not really worth it. Um, but it was really a, a, a marvelous childhood, and, and now that's coming to a close. And, and I look at this side right here, and I see this. He's made everything beautiful in its time. I trust him. And I'm open with you about that. And I, and I, and I know that I've, I've talked a lot about this in my journey because it's just me being real. And, and part of me being real is also me helping pastor you through those seasons in your life. That you would be able to say, like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that it's all good because God gave it as a gift. Life and death. Embrace and refraining. Gathering and casting away. Building up and tearing down. It all is a season under heaven to which God says, I want you to experience me through it. Because the seasons don't matter as much as I do. And I'm giving you the seasons so that you might find me. And that we would stand in awe. And so Psalm 130 verses 1 through 4 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That word fear is also used in chapter 5 verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And the author of the psalm says that forgiveness and fear belong together. And do you know what that points us to? It points us to the place where forgiveness and fear meet. Where the holiness of God and the depths of your sinfulness collide on the cross of Christ. Where he bore the wrath of God that you deserved. And he gave you the everlasting life in glory and goodness that only he deserves. For those who trust in King Jesus, that everlasting life and eternity in heaven belongs to you. For those who refuse to trust in King Jesus, you will come under the wrath of King Jesus by the way of the cross because you have rejected it. And so you will bear that wrath of hell and sin upon your own shoulders. And so the call for us here today to stand in awe of God is to receive the forgiveness of God with the fear of God and say, God, I belong to you. I've been bought with a price. That that would be our cry. And that the reality of our mouth would be honest to this morning. As we take communion, that we wouldn't offer empty vows and broken promises. But we would simply say in the sincerity of our heart, I belong to you. You are my God. And you are worthy to be feared. Why? Because you've forgiven me. Because you have forgiven me. And that matters more than anything else. There's an author and pastor, his name is Alistair Begg. He's a Scotsman. And he gives this application, which I want to give to you this morning as we close. We, we can't do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. Because if I were to say to you right now, go try, go, go ahead and do it. Try harder, read the Bible, pray your prayers, do the stuff. It would be vanity, it would be emptiness. But there is a promise for the Holy Spirit. 
And we need three things in order to walk in this true and authentic worship from the Holy Spirit. Number one, we need to be spiritually alive. Dead people cannot praise God. So we need life in our hearts. And that's the first thing we need. If you don't have it, recognize it and say, God, give me it. And he will be, he will give you what you desire to desire to follow Christ. He'll open your heart and you'll trust and believe in him. He'll make you alive. Number two is we need to be spiritually assisted, assisted. It's not on your own strength. You you can't do it. You can't create a plan for it. Now, those plans are important, and maybe the Holy Spirit assists you in those plans, but you need him. You need him. The Holy Spirit is someone who helps you worship God truly and authentically. He's not about making you a better businessman. He's not about making you a better mom or dad or have a better marriage or have a better career. The Holy Spirit wants to make you a better lover of God and worshiper of him. And so he will assist you as you trust in him and follow him. And number three, we need to be spiritually active. It's one thing that's fine and good to come in and sit in these chairs each and every week. But the danger is that we become like that family that we saw coming in where there's no regard for God. And so we must be a people of doing, of activity. Faith without works is dead. And so that God would awaken your life to the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that you would live your life for something far greater and far more significant. And that everything that God has given you in your family, in your career, in your home life, everything God has given you would be devoted to him. And you would recognize that all of your activity is for something greater than yourself. And I want to invite us for communion. I'm going to have the ushers come forward. And ushers, as you come forward and serve communion today, uh, as the ushers serve you communion today, may it be a very simple prayer that you offer here it is God thank you God thank you and God help me so that I might be who you've called me to be would you stand and we worship him together